0: This episode of GT The Podcast is supported by Alcon.
1: This is Ike Ahmed.
0: And I'm Arsham Shabani.
1: And we want to welcome you to GT The Podcast. We're bringing this to you together with BMC and Glaucoma Today. To offer audible insights into current topics in glaucoma care. Presented
0: by the authors of our latest, most read GT articles. Check it out. Welcome to another episode of Survey Says with Dr. Paul Singh, a special edition of GT the podcast in which Dr. Singh presents a real patient case from his practice and asks his guests to weigh in on how they would manage it. Today's episode features Dr. Zamine Vendal and Joseph Panarelli. The guests share their perspectives on how glaucoma care has evolved in recent decades and how these changes have affected their decision-making process. With the glaucoma toolbox bigger than ever, they are intervening earlier and opting for surgery sooner. In addition, the wide array of treatment options has introduced new challenges. They discuss how they keep their surgical skills sharp and how to ensure trainees are prepared with a well-rounded education. Later, the panel reviews a case of a patient with primary open angle glaucoma and a history of SLT and cataract surgery with the eye stent inject in both eyes. IOP in the right eye is in the mid-teens on no medication, but IOP in the left eye is in the low 20s on medication. The patient does not want to add more drops and visual field loss has progressed slowly over the past two years in the left eye. The group shares which treatment option they would choose next for the patient, and later they find out how their colleagues would approach the case based on results of a poll of GT's audience conducted on social media. Tune in to Survey Says with Dr. Paul Singh.
1: All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of GT the Podcast. Survey says, My name is Paul Singh. I'm a glaucoma dude out in southeastern Wisconsin, and I have two really fun, great friends who are going to help me out with this uh, case that we had you all um, kind of give your thoughts and feedback on in social media. But we have Zarmina Vendal out in Austin, Texas. What's up,
2: Zarmina? Hey, Paul. Glad to be here. Glad to be here.
1: Thanks for hanging out after a busy clinic day. And then we got Joe Panarelli out in New York. Thanks for hanging out, you guys. You know, this is so much fun. I mean, we always joke around how, how lucky we are in glaucoma to have all these great options at our disposal to, like, treat our patients now. And, and you know, this whole idea is, that, you know, what makes do you do or drug delivery or SLT or, you know, subcon surgery and the kind of the when, the why, the where. Is a question that still comes up, and I think it's, it's still a good discussion to have because everyone has a different perspective on kind of how we use all these different technologies. So before I get into the case that we're going to talk about, and we had, of course, everyone out there give their opinions, I just want to get your thoughts. I mean, so, Amina, why don't you just give us your thoughts? I mean, you do, right, drug delivery, SLT, MIGs, and, and subcons, yeah. right? So just Absolutely. kind of- over- yeah. So tell me about like, I mean, do you, are you, is it, has it changed or just your thought process of kind of when you decide to do surgeries now or intervene, intervene? Are you intervening much earlier or doing procedures more, more earlier? What do you think?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I can't even, um, I can't even believe the way we used to practice glaucoma, right? Compared to the, the way it is now, I would say 18 years later, I mean, when I was walking as a fellow at Mass Pioneer 18 years ago, I don't think I would have ever dreamed that we had this many options. And um, so much of our relationship with our glaucoma patients was really kind of talking them through their disease progression, you know, because we were limited. And a lot of that limit was based on risk to benefit ratio. And we didn't have a lot in our toolbox. And for me, the most exciting part about being a private practice glaucoma person who is also at the intersection of practicing cataract surgery of taking care of dry eye and all of these other things is that our toolbox for glaucoma is, is bigger than it's ever been. And so for us, specific to the way we practice here in Austin, Texas, I can say early intervention is the name of the game. And when we are reaching for surgery, and even even if it's just laser in the office to minimally invasive um, to incisional, is way sooner than it used to be, I would say, when I was a fellow, much sooner.
1: Yeah, and that's a really good point because you're in private practice, and I am too. You know, we both do studies, and I mean, we, we both see kind of extremes from mild glaucoma or ocular hypertensive all the way to kind of the, the, the really scary kind of glaucoma that are progressing rapidly. Joe, I know you're out in New York, and you're, you're kind of more of a tertiary care uh, academic setting. So talk about your kind of experience with all these different devices. I mean, are you skewed more to the subcon just because of the type of patient population you see, or how does it work for you, and how you use all these technologies?
3: Yeah, I think you know it's, it's always a great question and the the honest answer is I have no freaking idea. There's so much out there. It's it's wonderful to have, <laughs> but um you know, it it's there's a ton of options and really I'd love to say that all of us have practices where we have, you know, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and we can use all these tools. But like you're alluding to, it, it, it isn't the case in, all, in all of our, a lot of our practices. Mine is a little more skewed towards the more advanced patient population. So, yeah, I am still sticking to subconj, uh, you know, micro-shunting procedures, some traditional glaucoma surgeries. But listen, I'm not against, you know, doing canal-based stuff when I have the right case. Um, but I agree with everything that's been said. You know, it's all about starting to intervene earlier because I think, we're diagnosing the disease earlier with really good imaging, and patients are living longer. So we are treating this disease for a very long time, and we need all the tools we can get.
1: Yeah, you know, now that we've had let's say stenting for like ten years now, and some other procedures even for like eight to ten plus years, do you feel, like Zarmina, so I mean, in private practice, do you feel like you're doing less traditional incisional surgeries because you have other options, or because we're treating earlier, we're not seeing as much progression? What do you
2: think? It's both. Um, I I do trabeculectomies and and tubes so infrequently now, but I think it's a function of both. We go out into our community and educate our referral sources really regarding MIGs to the point where they send them in sooner. Um, And because we have so many options. And so just the way um, that he pointed out earlier, I love the idea of being able to customize to the patient if it's somebody who's advanced as in his practice is going to be different if it's somebody who's you know borderline glaucoma it's going to be different but because there are so many options that are i also think um you know Less scary for the patient and less scary for every single surgeon, whether it's comprehensive or glaucoma, because those procedures are a little bit more digestible, that the doctors are reaching for them sooner for that reason and, and more apt to talk about them with the patient with a little bit more confidence. When you're talking to somebody about doing an eye stand or a hydrus, your conversation is going to feel completely different. Then if you've got to tell them, sorry, i are going to do a trabeculectomy to your eye, right? And so I think doctors have also started employing these procedures sooner because of that, because of the safety profile.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And yeah, I mean, I think in my, my opinion, in my practice, I think you're right. I mean, I do a lot less traditional glaucoma surgery, although it comes in ways. I have these days where I have like, you know, tubes, 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 and neovascular, you know, secondary glaucoma. is like, oh man, they've already had previous traps or zens or whatever else. So it comes in ways, but I do see less. I think part of it's because we are treating earlier with other procedures and other diagnostics that are picking up earlier disease. And then, yes, probably because we I, I do probably do like a subconj, migs, MIBs, like, like a zen before I do a trap. Couple times, you know. And I'll, so I'll, I'll incorporate like the MIB stuff before
3: Paul, can I can I steal your job and ask a question? Because this just came to my mind. Yeah, man. Yeah. All dude, right. Please. I'm gonna I'm gonna play I'm gonna play host here. Um, you know, it's interesting. I I I've been teaching for you know quite a while and uh, always you know in an academic setting. And you know, listen, it's harder and harder to teach all these types of surgical procedures. And it, it's even harder for us to keep our skills sharp when we're doing you know such a wide array of surgeries. You know we know that we're using these procedures earlier but we also know they have a finite amount of time that they're probably going to be effective you know are are we going to lose our skills in in some of the the bigger procedures are trainees getting enough like I don't know. I was just thinking about that because patients are living longer that, you know, it's not and we're treating earlier and we're treating more aggressively. But, you know, there is a lifespan on a lot of these mixed procedures. So are we just going to see a wave in the next few years where we're going to have to get more aggressive? I don't know. I just feel like that just like I just that just hit me.
1: That's oh, so funny because that was that was the question I was going to ask you. As a teaching institution, having fellows and residents was going to be like, you tell me. what. So I'll, I'll take that answer, but I want to have you answer it too because that was actually yeah, the question so I was going to ask I you. as a teacher, I've never
3: worked so hard in my life, like trying to make sure that my trainees are really well-rounded. I have to be very cognizant, you know, of how many traps, how many tubes, how many I'm handing over, what we're doing together. So – um, I think the teaching has has become you know you have to be very uh, you have to be very aware of of how your trainees are doing and you know I, I think for me I'm always trying to get them you know out there so that they have at least some fallback some basic tools and they're gonna have to keep learning on the job I think that's the key we all learned on the job and you got to keep doing it.
1: So you said exactly what I was gonna say I think that's exactly right you have to take, teach a skill set. So, I think, you know, a subcon look, as much as I want to say I don't ever want to do a travel tube again, guess what? I will have to do it again and again. And it's going to happen. And I think you're absolutely right. We cannot give up on traditional glaucoma surgery. As much as I love all the different options we have in the conventional outflow pathway and even lasers. I really would say that you needed to still learn how to do a TRAB. I think it's important for our residents, especially fellows, to have good experience with TRABs and tubes because you'll still need them and they're still great procedures. And a good TRAB surgeon has amazing outcomes. And, and so we don't want to minimize that. I guess to answer your question about um, do I think they're going to have an a influx of all these people who had like conventional MIGs and a uh, 10 years later, boom, they're all coming back. Exactly. I think two things. I think we don't have the, We don't have the data yet, but I will say this. I think when you treat earlier, and if you look at a data like the Horizon trial, five-year data, et cetera, I think treating earlier in general when you have a conventional pathway where the TM is not fibrose, where the conventional outflow pathway is not completely fibrose with a decrease in flow with fibrosis of, because of BAK of the TM and of the canal and the distal channels, I do think I am seeing patients who are progressing less rapidly. It doesn't mean that you're going to have all of a sudden an influx of people who all of a sudden feel out out of nowhere. There's still there's still going to be people who progress like we would anyways, right? So if you whether you do a MIGS a MIGS let's say a MIGS conventional MIGS procedure or SLT or drug delivery, you're still following them, right? But the progression's slower. So I don't think you have a sudden one day they're gonna come in all of a sudden, everything's failed all of a sudden, because we're still following them. And if they do, let's say start to rise or pressure starts to rise, you put them back on drops if you need to. And then if that happens and they're still having progression, we'll still do traps and tubes if we need to as well. So I don't personally think we're gonna have a sudden like, oh my God, everyone's failing. But I do think that we'll be able to push the can down the road a lot longer. And then for some people, enough where they are still able to maintain good, you know quality of life and vision without having to do a travel or two because of the age, but there's some people who probably still need that as well. That's just my personal thought and kind of data with all the horizon trial and everything else that's come out, slowing the progression compared to category alone with drops. I do think that we're going to see less amount, but still people who need to do travel and tubes. So Amina, what do you think of that you question? I kind
2: of read my mind there, Paul. I mean, one point I was going to make was that when we throw MIGs in early, we're not just reaching them early. We're, I think we're changing their trajectory. You know what I mean? So, the way their glaucoma is going to behave changes because we got to their TM sooner. So, I totally agree with you there. But I agree with Joe 100% too that the role of the glaucoma subspecialist and needing to know all of the styles of surgery will never go away. But what MIGS does is it opens the care of glaucoma to way more than beyond glaucoma specialists, right? And there's so many doctors out there who really do need to be able to handle glaucoma. And if they're not adept at things like MIGS, then every time there's a cataract surgery that happens in a glaucoma person, then opportunity is missed. So I think of it as more additive and not necessarily taking away from a skill set, because those of us that are gonna be fellowship training glaucoma specialists are still always gonna really be there, but we won't be the right limiting step if MIGS is employed early. Um, and so I, I think of it as additive. Um, really. yeah. I think the
3: big key you guys both, you both address is that, you know, changing that trajectory and that's what we're hoping. And listen, are we going to likely overtreat a good number of people um, that may have been okay? Sure. But, you know, it's all about trying to, I think it's all about trying to assess risk as best we can and, you know, trying to alter that, uh, you know, that path for a patient who, you know, otherwise would have gone on to, you know, functional blindness in their lifetime.
1: Yeah. Oh, these are really good questions and good points you made, and I think that's what we have to wait and see. You know, time will tell. Great glaucoma is a long-term progressive disease. Um, but I think I do think, and again, we'll do one last point about the whole trajectory thing. I mean, you think about it, right? I mean, you do open a TM early on, this theoretically, you open that TM, whether it's SLT, whether it's you know, you know, MiGs, etc., you're you're gonna keep that canal but that theoretically patent longer, right? That pen, the canal stays patent, the episcopinous system, the collector channels don't they don't collapse potentially, right? The Ossia don't, don't close up potentially. And so that then changes the like light, the light longevity of their outflow system working. So that's just my, I drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago. I, I'm still drinking it, I guess, but <laughs> it is what it is. But, but, but when you, so I mean, you, oh, you, no. you were
3: pouring that Kool-Aid, you have like a whole refrigerator full of Kool-Aid.
0: Oh yeah,
1: man. dude. That, I, got, I got flavors <laughs> of Kool-Aid, all the Kool-Aid you yeah. want, man. Just come yeah. to my house, man. Come <laughs> to <laughs> my office. I got them all. But um, but but it's a really good point, man. We got to be fair and balanced about it, and, and we do have to teach our residents and fellows the, the, the full skill skill set. So that's a really good point, Joe. I'm glad you brought it up. But I do want to transition a little bit over to the uh, the case at hand, and because Armita made a good point earlier, just said, hey, if you have a cataract and you have a glaucoma patient on drops, and you don't do a MIGS or some type of glaucoma procedure, it is kind of an opportunity that you know you look back like, oh man, would have been nice to have done something at that time. But we look at the kind of quote-unquote standalone MIGS world, right? The patients, let's say, have already had a cataract surgery, we've already had something done, let an SLT, now what, right? Do you do something? So in the standalone market is still slowed, still slowed to, I think, uh, advance or progress. It's been kind of a kind of steady state, so to speak. And I think part of that's because, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. You know, Armina. you're in private practice, Joe, I yeah, know you have more tertiary, but you have a patient who, let's say, had SLT in general, and let's say has on drops and not happy and pseudophagic, You know, are you pretty happy and comfortable going in to do surgery, just for that kind of patient For let's say, a MIGS?
2: For standalone?
1: Yeah,
2: 100 percent, 100 percent comfortable and really educating even our junior surgeons and our referral sources to think early intervention um, for quite a while now. And again, it just boils down to, you know, how much opportunity we might have in the early stage of the game to revitalize their entire, you know, episcleral venous network um, before it's too late. And so that's really our thought process and why we we really try to get there. The other is the reality of, the you know, all the chronic issues related to topical drug therapy. I mean, that's a real thing for us in Texas and in Austin. And and so we, we tend to shy away from, you know, chronic topical drug therapy as much as possible.
3: You know, it's, it's, a, it's a really great question. I 100% agree. Standalone MIGs definitely have a nice role Um my some my hesitation sometimes uh, is is driven by patient expectations. Um, uh, I will say this that a lot of patients nowadays expect like perfection every time. They read about everything online, you know they do their homework, they do their research, and and I'll say that, you know, um getting that efficacy for a sustained period of time can be probably a little more variable when you're doing some canal-based surgery in patients who have had, you know their cataracts already taken out because we do know that the cataract surgery, you know, it does provide a robust uh, IOP reduction, um, but again, part of it is about your your patient selection choice, but you know, I think a little bit of it comes down to you know, kind of, do I think I'm going to lose this patient if they, they fail? You know, patients often down the road shy away, and when they're like, oh, I've had three procedures, none of them really seem to work, why am I going to go on and have something else? So just something to consider.
1: Yeah, well, that's. I'm glad you brought that up because that was my, my thought. I, I think that when I survey a lot of colleagues around the country, talk about standalone MIGs and why it hasn't grown quite as much. Let's say combo, combo cataract is to your point, Joe. I mean, you know, when you go in there for cataract, you know, if the, if the pressure don't come down. As much as you want, they're back on drops. Patients are happy; they can see better. You're like, "Hey, I'm still a good surgeon, right?" But you know, when you go in for standalone MIGs, and let's say you're trying to get them off a med or trying to get the pressures down, it doesn't happen. Do you you feel as a surgeon, "Oh my God, I let my patient down"? Are you afraid the patients going to be mad at you? And you know, all those questions come up, and it's all natural. I mean, it's really important questions, and there's some variability and depending on the type of procedure you do. And I think that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. And and the way I deal with that, I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on how you educate patients. We will get to the case, I promise, guys. But I want to hear how you educate and how you manage the expectations. Because to me, it's about telling a patient it's a journey, and I'm going to institute and I'm going to utilize different technologies along this journey to maximize the quality of your life, but also address your glaucoma to protect you. But it may require multiple different procedures over the course of your lifespan, um, and kind of just may, managing the expectation that not any one product or drop or any one kind of technology is going to cure them, so to speak. But we'll try different things along the way. Anyone, do you guys want to comment how you discuss surgery and going into surgery?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm going to say. For a second, I've, I love the, co- the, the conversation you had about, you know, our colleagues shy away from it because we're, we're nervous about, are we really going to be able to de- deliver the result when it comes to minimally invasive? But I would challenge you to say when it comes to the patient and, you know, again, our colleagues in the community that refer in, their, their fear is the exact opposite. And that is the side effects and the long-term issues with incisional surgery they're actually the exact opposite mindset. So we, as, while we as glaucoma specialists worry about the results, they worry about complications. And, you know, many, a a colleague in the community have talked about how they're afraid of sending patients in for things like TRABS. and you only need one, you know, infected bleb with a a blind patient to completely, you know, change the mind of, of, of the referring provider. So I think when it comes to patients, actually, for minimally invasive they're way easier to convince than we think they are because to them, safety and efficacy and preserving vision and lack of complications is very compelling. And so when I have that conversation and I talk about minimally invasive as milder and having less of a chance of having something go wrong, the fact that I say, hey, it may not last as long in my patient population, they don't mind that as much when they hear that it's a lot safer. So that's the experience we have.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, I totally agree with you, and I think from you know, I'd love to hear Joe's thoughts on this. But you know, do, do you talk about hey, it may not work, and if it doesn't work, here's what we're gonna do. I mean, do you do you talk about the negative of we have to do something more later on, Joe? How do you deal with that?
3: A hundred percent. Because if you don't, I mean, listen, I tell them oftentimes the biggest risk with some of these procedures is it not working, and you know, you may be like, oh, it's not a complication, but you know, well, you. you it just lightens the mood a little bit, but I let them know, you know, it's a possibility. I think the big thing is if you are getting referred from outside, making sure that your referring doc sets the expectations appropriately. I've had a bunch of patients come in and be like, I ah, hear you can do this real simple procedure that's going to get me off all my meds. And I'm like, whoa, let's walk this back. Um, you know, who said this? Do they want to do this? You know, I think it's like one of the big things we have to recognize is that MIGS is not necessarily easy but that's what it ends up. I think sometimes it gets dumbed down to in the community. Sometimes um, it is you know these are these are nuanced. You know, getting these microstents uh, or, or you know you know into the canal catheters into the canal. It's it's a very challenging procedure to do it well and to really be in the right place. And that's what you need to do to get the efficacy that we would like to get. So now, Paul. I mean, I talk about it a lot of times. Patients know they've seen family members who have gone down. You know, the road of you know, tubes and traps and not love, they don't love the idea of it for all the reasons that, you know, Zarmina talked about. Like, there's 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 a lot. I mean, listen, all you got to do is tell them to go home and Google a video of trabeculectomy or tube shunt and they'll be like, yeah, that's not happening.
1: <laughs> that's a good point well no th- i want to set the stage because now we're going to talk about the case so thanks those are great pearls guys i appreciate that so let's talk about the case i'm going to um, read it out loud for everybody again and then i'm going to have you guys comment on what you think you would do so that's a 68 year old this is a real patient uh, of mine I'll, I'll I'll tell you what i did a uh, 68 year old african-american male uh history of mild POAG right eye Left eye had moderate POAG and had a history of SLT in the past and had cataract surgery with an eye stent inject in both, actually eye stent inject in both eyes. Uh, Right eye did really well uh, off of meds, middle teens. Left eye, pressures are in the low 20s, but still actually on a PGA in that left eye. So the patient's basically like on one eye drops, and not the other eye. Not happy about that because he doesn't want to take drops in general. Had a history of having allergic reactions to drops and drying eyes and drops. And so he's like, I don't want to take drops anymore. And his field has progressed over the last few years in the left eye so one eye has been drops on a pga already had slt already had cataract and an eye stent in that eye so the question i had posed to the world out there on social media we did did linkedin we did instagram and twitter uh we asked basically what would you do next uh so i'll read them out loud then i'll have you guys kind of chime in so there was the question was we do slt another slt and or let's say drug delivery whether together or you know separately a goniotomy type procedure, GAT type of goniotomy type of procedure, some type of laser cyclo-destructive, or some type of subconj, let's say MIBs, MIBs, like a Zen, or even a subconj surgery like a Trab. Uh, so that was the, the options that I put out there as well. So before we get into the audience's kind of responses and, and the results, so I want to kind of get your thoughts. So, you know, we have two different uh, surgeons here. One's more, Joe's more of a subconj guy, you know, but does a lot of some MIGs too. And so I mean, there's a lot, lot of more commercial MIGs. So what would you do next? I mean, looking at those options. In your, in your situation.
0: This episode of GT, the podcast is supported by Alcon.
2: Yeah, I mean, so the dry eye thing speaks big to me, right? And so I hesitate to do any sort of topical treatment in a person who I know long-term, that's just not really a viable option. Um, one eye certainly doesn't have a PGA, so I do think of something like Darista or drug delivery, anything to keep stuff off of the eye. But short of that, my tendency is again to go into the angle and deliver options for migs and we're lucky enough in certainly our part of the country where Canaloplasty hasn't been taken away from us yet. And so we are able to do the combo together and still offer it to patients as a viable option of canaloplasty plus goniotomy together. Um, and so that's the thing—that's the type of procedure that comes to my mind. Uh, but I, I certainly feel that unroofing of the canal has to happen, you know, in addition, and, and that's the direction that I would tend to go if MIGS is what the patient selected. And if not, and they want a drug delivery, I mean, we could certainly go there first. And of course, in the Ada doesn't have a PGA yet.
1: Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that one. Uh, I'm gonna ask Joe his thoughts, and I'm gonna ask you some more questions before we get to the audience response. All so, right. What did you do next, buddy? All um, right. Here we go. I'm waiting, here we I'm go. Waiting. Bring
3: it on. It, you Hello, know, baby, bring it. <laughs> it. You know. You always, you know, I got Steve Getty always in my head whenever I'm trying to make a decision and, you know, you know, Steve's first question, again, I hate when people ask me a bazillion questions about more about the case, but, you know, you always want to know how the patient did with the initial treatments, you know, did, did, did they not work at all? Did they work for a period of time, you know, and, and sometimes you don't have that information readily, readily available. I think if you do, it does help guide your decision-making somewhat, um, you know, the patient's age, um, you know, bothers me a bit. The fact that it's already moderate, though moderate can span, you know, quite a spectrum of uh, of disease here. Um, you know, I, I'm, I would lean towards the subconscious procedure if I'm trying to keep this patient off topical therapy forever and. Um, I think we have a good chance of doing that. And again, like you were saying, if you use it early, listen, we know with some of these newer micro shunts we get a, yeah, this patient may not need to be exceedingly low. This isn't a patient who needs a trab like pressure of eight to 12, you know, maybe a pressure 14 to 18 is okay in this patient. So I think you could consider a Zen, um, you know, depending upon the patient's other risk factors, but you know, that's, that's where I'm kind of starting.
1: Yeah. I mean, the beautiful thing about this case, um, is that the all the all are good options, man? I mean, honestly, it's like there's no right or wrong. It depends on your comfort level. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Where the target pressure would be is kind of that middle teens as well, 14, you know, 15, 16 range. I'd be happy with even 17, keeping it more stable, getting him off the topical PGA. And the fact that he only is on just a PGA, not multiple meds, um, I think is a good sign too that a lot of these different options would probably work. Um, I'm going to give you my thoughts and kind of what I did and, and kind of what, what I, what I would have. Joe, what I would do. But before we do that, let's get the audience's review and, and their opinion. And then I want to get your thoughts on the audience's uh, perspective. But yeah, man, those are really good points. We're going to talk about what you guys both mentioned in a second here as well. So the audience had a couple of things. So on Instagram, we had, uh, it's actually really funny, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, all pretty much all the same type of, I mean, uh, responses. pretty impressive. So about 35 to 40% said SLT or drug delivery, would they be their next option? Then 30% or so said goniotomy, kind of gap. Very few, only like three or 4% said some psychodestructive, like you like know, ECP or, or like micropulse or something like that. Uh, and then about 20 or so percent said subcons, like a Zen. So it was a pretty good spread. I mean, and I looked at LinkedIn, we looked at uh, as well as Twitter, it's pretty much follows the same uh, about same same kind of percentages as well. So it makes sense. None of the options are wrong. They're all good options. Yeah. I love it. I, that's what's so great. So let's, let's dive in more deeply. So, um, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of talk to First of all, I'm going to go with what, what Zarmina said, and then I'm going to talk about what, what Joe, what you did. So Zarmina, I kind of, I did kind of what you uh, had suggested. I did, I did really more of a, I did a GAT, canal plastic GAT procedure. I, I oh, went around those two stents right. and that's
2: why. I'm but, sorry, but I said because that's the right choice. Oh, right dang, choice.
1: slam. Damn, <laughs> she slammed, she slammed that one. Um, but, you know, here's why. Here's why, though, because I think Joe's right, man. I think, look, you could do a sub – I mean, a Zen in this patient would be great because even if it did, let's say, creeped up a little bit there, fibrosis, interstitial fibrosis, some T-Nons, he's an African-American guy. He might have some fibrosis. We need some degaling. If his pressure goes up to 17, 18 range but stays stable, he's the of drops, I'm happy with that. So Joe's right. This is a great patient for a Zen, actually. But the reason I said, okay, you know, we always have the Zen in my back pocket. I can always do it. And I think it's a great option there. But I, he, what I said is, look, let me just go ahead and still one last time, maximize the conventional outflow pathway, do a canalplasty GAT. That's it. We're done with the conventional pathway after this and see how that works. And then if that doesn't work, we can always do a Zen later on. What I ended up doing with this, guy is I did a GAT, and then the pressure was not bad. It went up a little bit there, so I, put a, I did a Dorista <laughs> after that to Damn, keep my wow. – but so I, I combined it a little bit there. Does this guy might does he might need a Zen later on? Absolutely. I think he probably will eventually in that left eye for some reason. But we'll see. I mean, right now he's doing pretty well. Actually, it's been about, I think, six months after Darista and his he's and he's still doing pretty well. He's in like the middle teens right now, fourteen, fifteen. Let me and ask after, you a of
2: curiosity. In your in your patient population, what is your uh, rate of failure with Zen? Like how many of them scar? Yeah, this
3: patient may be that's what I was alluding to before about risk factors. You know, a younger African American patient may not be the best zen candidate you know i, I gotta tell you i know we may not want to hear this i might consider you know just just tubing this patient um or even doing a trap it, you know it's, it's crazy as that sounds um but if i felt that this patient has you know a, a real significant risk maybe the patient had you know family you know a family history with a relative who went blind from glaucoma that might sway me to get more aggressive early with more you know more the traditional surgeries, because, you know, these patients sometimes quickly will, will fall off on you. I mean, it's always hard knowing who are going to be those fast progressors. And so, um, you know, I, I think my Zen success, because I'm careful with my choice, probably is, you know, 70 to 80 percent, you know, in terms of, you know, get my patients to where I want them to be, which is not progressing. And again, that's not an IOP necessarily, you know, success, but, you know, getting them
2: stable. And I meant to ask that only because of exactly what you pointed out, which is that all this could be customized. And so what's good in one person's hands may not be in another. And so to give you our example, like in our particular community here, we were doing Zens, like 40% of them were, were failing after a while. And so it's that's just that caveat that what i love about this case and all the options is that there are so many options and for us to know that about our practice you know what i mean that if the zens are just not doing well then maybe that's why we do the you know we're going to intermediary step of migs and then just go straight to filtration so that's probably the reason we've tended to go that way
1: yeah and, and i think i think you guys brought up a really good point and joe i'm glad you brought it up about this and doesn't always mean much lower iop i mean stability of iop in, you know, you look at ages on the data sets out there. I mean, fluctuating IOP independently can be a risk factor for progression in some people. So sometimes it's just, you know, we don't realize how much IOP fluctuation can be a risk factor. So you don't have to be super aggressive sometimes. Just keep it stable if you can. And that's a really good point. The other thing I was going to say is, I mean, when, when, you, when you look at these options, what what option you do? Is it going to limit you from doing further future options? And the one benefit to me of the conventional alpha pathway, and, and you know what? A lot of people, it may not work. It may fail. It may have to do something else, right? Absolutely. But the good thing about that is that you say, okay, if it doesn't work, I have my zen. I can do not a problem. The subconscious space is still there for me. And if I don't, if the zen doesn't work superior nasally, guess what? I can do a trab or I can do a tube superior temporally if I have to. So you're always thinking about what's next if I don't, if this doesn't work as well. And that's why I think when we talk about conventional alpha-migs, people kind of give it a bad rap for more moderate to severe patients. And absolutely, a trab and tube is better for some people, no doubt. But those patients where, you know what, you just want to, you want to get more stable, You always have that option later on. And as long as you tell the patient, look, this may or may not work. If it doesn't, you have that other option. And I tell them ahead of time. That's what I told this guy as well. And so I think that mentality of it's not this or we're done. It's this and then what's next if need be kind of mentality. I'm not sure if that's how you guys are feeling it, but that's kind of why I asked earlier how we manage the expectations. And that's kind of what I felt like for this guy. But um, any thoughts on that, Joe?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's always just a little bit tricky, right? I mean, we talk about you know, kicking the can down the road. And sometimes the patients will just be like, doc, can we just finish this? Can we just, I don't want to worry about this anymore. And it's a balance. I mean, that's part of the art of doctoring is, you know, trying to, you know, understand the patient that's sitting in front of you and and figure it out. Yes. I think it makes total sense. If a patient said to me, doc, I'm going to stick with you for everything and just do whatever you want. It would always make sense to go a stepwise approach um, and sort of escalate based upon, you know, your risk assessment. But, you know, it doesn't always work that way. And again, the, the, the second point I'll make is the rate of progression. You know, it's hard. Sometimes you do a surgery in one of these patients and the pressure actually goes up because they have some bleeding or, 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 something else go on and you awaken a sleeping giant. So, you know, they have to understand that that is a possibility that you have to move on, you know, a little more quickly than what you would have thought.
1: Yeah. And no, that's a really good point. Um, I think what, 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 what would have changed? I'm asking actually Zarmina, if this patient was on four meds or three meds, and on the pressure of 20s, would that change your mindset of what you would do next?
2: Absolutely. And, I, and, and that's that's a great segue into you know the titration of what's needed for every patient. Everybody's glaucoma is the same. And so that's telling me right away that his glaucoma is way more resistant, right? Than if just being on one meds and he mid-teens. So I would definitely skip drug delivery in that case, but I still would at least try unroofing the canal goniotomy. Um, but my rate, my, my quickness to progress, right, then ne- the next step would be a lot quicker and, and, and much lower thresholds. And, and then you throw in there, as Joe mentioned before, race or a very aggressive form of glaucoma, maybe five people in the family have it. And so then maybe we're going to Zen right away. So, yeah, every, every case should be customized. We didn't have the luxury of that in the past and we do now, but we have to think about every case differently. But definitely more medications would really push us in the more aggressive direction for sure.
3: Can I ask the two of you, my my angle whizzes here, um, does it make a difference how that first eye center, how the SLT uh, performed? Does that make you more uh, apt to do something or not to do something? Or is it really, it, it doesn't make a huge difference because of the you know the procedures that you're thinking about doing?
2: You know, the purpose of unroofing the canal, I have to say that I I tend not to, I will still give that a go. Um, I know there are thoughts out there of how the angle responds to SLT and to what you can expect. For me, again, because I'm talking to this patient about, hey, we're treating this condition together for the rest of your life. I present them more. Would look at how many options we have, so it's exhaust one option at a time. So I hate to cross that off, you know, just because of how they they might have responded to S L T when it comes to roofing. I, I I still would I still would go there.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a good question, Joe. I, mean, I I we have some data we've we kind of presented a while ago based upon like our stenting data and and SLT and that people who have historically a poor response to SLT tended to not do quite as well with let's say for micro bypass alone, like I stents, Um, but it doesn't mean, that that tells you that it's not only the TM, it could mean the canal or the distal collector channels. So as Armina was saying, if you're unroofing the canal and you're exposing to the episcopena system, there's a good chance that some of those people who didn't respond to let's say a stent or didn't respond to SLT lather, may respond to this unroofing because it may have been the canal collapse and you're opening it up. So, but you're right. There's some, there's some people who is still, even with that, the EVP, the episcriminate system, rather, might be messed up and they may not be able to respond regardless of what you do in the canal. And that, that is part of the crapshoot. We don't know where the resistance to outflow is preoperatively. So we are kind of guessing with conventional pathway versus with subcons, you kind of know it's all about the flap or your zen and your subcons, your resistance of the interstitial resistance of the tenon. So, and I, I actually
3: um, think, I, I might even have another option here, Paul, for you. Um, that I think, you know, might be available uh, sooner rather than later. Um, you were just doing it, weren't you? Uh, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's the question I was going to – yeah, so that was, that was the last question I had to do. You were like – in my mind tonight, dude. <laughs> that's, that's what I do. That's what I do. Underneath, you, you are like right in there. my mind. So yeah. So so we talked about drug delivery. We had Darista, great product as well. Um, and and I use everything, right? But recently, we just got approval. This actually this week, last week, uh, of the intracameral Travaprost delivery system by Glaukos, called the Idos. Now, the that they have data that supports, you know, at about a year out, about 80% of people are off of meds and still controlled. And about three-year data, but well over 65% or 70% are still controlled with same or less meds at three years. So there's a little bit of longevity to that one. Still about 30% reduction of IOP. So the question is, would you do that along with, let's say, your conventional outflow migs. Uh, if we get reimbursed, well, that's another question going to happen. Or do we do that alone in some people and it's going to get that 30% reduction, you know, potentially in a patient like who's responded well, let's say, to uh, PGA? The problem with this guy is this guy didn't re- he was already on. A PGA and his precious 20s. That was the reason why I was like, you know what, I think I have to do something more than just like a drug delivery alone, just because of the fact that he was not responding as well as I wanted to, and progressing on a topical PGA. If he was controlled on a PGA, meaning IOP was in the middle teens, but he's just like, I'm unhappy eyes are dry or red, et cetera. Then I think a drug delivery alone, like an eye dose would be a great option. Honestly, that's kind of where I think it, 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 where it differentiates this guy. Um, but yeah, that, it's a great option. I think especially alongside a conventional pathway mix, You're doing your GAT, you're doing your canaloplasty, whatever, your goniotomy. And if you just put this thing in there at the same time, you're already in surgery, that gives you that 30% reduction. You get that PGA in there for a few years. I think it's a great option. I mean, what do you think, Joe? Would you use that in, in your... Kind of uh, I got to tell you, of all the of all the things out there, this is the one I'm for me,
3: as maybe a guy who's not doing as much makes, I'm pretty excited about. I got to tell you, I'm I'm all in on medications inside the eye. I I don't know if it's that they're gonna alter you know, the outflow pathway permanently. I, I don't know, but, you know, I've had people on PGAs who, you know, maybe they were not at target because they weren't using the drops, which a lot of these patients who, you know, claim to have side effects don't use their drops quite as much, but uh, yeah, I've seen it with Darista. I put some of them in patients and I'm like, Whoa, it works. I mean, intra- I, I've never worried about intracameral drug delivery working. You know, we've all just been a little bit concerned about some of the, you know, safety, you know, uh, profile issues that, you know, may have been seen in other trials, but, I gotta tell you, I I'm excited about the Idos, and for me, I I would like it. I kind of like it here.
2: I mean, just to, just to address the compliance alone, right? And when you get this whopping amazing effect with the with the Duriska, it's like that's telling you something about the patient maybe not even taking their PGA regularly, right? And so there's just so many wins with intercameral or just drug delivery in general. It's just taking you know, consistency out of the equation when it comes to the patient's compliance and it's a big deal. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's a big win. And I also love the additive nature of it and how you can kind of um, feel like you're doing more by putting two things together at once. Um, so, so I think it's, yeah, I think it's a way of the future more and more. So just a matter of the doctors getting um, uh, uh, comfortable with it.
1: Well, you know, Joe, you brought up, you brought up that, that comment you made just now. I'm not sure if you guys ever heard what you said. You have confidence that it's going to work, right? I mean, earlier we talked about why some docs aren't comfortable doing standalone MIGs. Well, like, you know, is it going to work or not? There's some variability of efficacy based upon anatomy, physiology, procedure technique, technique et cetera. Well, we all kind of feel comfortable. We know that T- PGA's work. <laughs> and we know no, from I the agree. data. I mean, and that's, the-
3: that's it. So to me, this is like, it, for for me, somebody who has at times been skeptical of some of the canal-based procedures, just because we, there's so many unanswered questions with the patient's outflow system, I don't know, guys. I'm never I'm never upset typically when I start a PGA or a, you know PGAs have they they just they make me feel all warm inside.
1: <laughs> we want to feel warm. We want it, I mean, we feel it's warm like a inside. guarantee on a light. box.
3: It's like a guarantee. Oh. Okay, you stamp that guarantee on there. I'm good.
1: Dude, I love it, man. And that, that is a really good thing. I think that's what's gonna—that we're going we're gonna to see. And I really do think, you know, and again, not not sure how it's going to work out with reimbursement, but I do think, I'll tell you this, all tides rise when you have more options for patients. So now we have Durista and potentially IDOS soon coming up, right? Already approved. I think you're going to see more doctors just saying, okay, now I'm going to get involved with the drug delivery world now, whether it's the IDOS or Durista, whatever, we'll see. But I think that's more noise, more people are realizing, okay, I have these options. Let me think about it now versus just kind of waiting around and waiting and waiting. So that's my big push, right? We, we have these options. Whatever one you decide, whatever you feel more comfortable doing, whatever's available to you, it doesn't have to be one or the other all the time. But you know, I think just thinking about this idea that patients do progress, Joe, your point was well taken. And we don't know who's going to be a fast progressor, who's not, risk factors, compliance, co- quality of life, all of these different issues that we now are realizing more and more have a, an effect on their longevity and their uh, stability of glaucoma over time. So no, man, you guys, this was awesome. Any last comments from both of you about just this case or about kind of where we're headed in glaucoma in general? I'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah. I mean, when I think of the glaucoma revolution, these words that we throw out you know, so much now and get all getting excited about as glaucoma specialists, I think some of what we just talked about hits a nail on the head, right? Part of the revolution is about us as surgeons. And we just proved just in our 40 minutes that if there's one type of device or option that makes a doctor want to dip their toe where they before were skeptical, it's a win. And so for me, that might be, um, you know, traditional MIGs. For Joe, that might be intracranial travapro But the point is more patients will get more options. And that's really what I think this revolution is about is to really, fight glaucoma with as many options as possible that aren't just there for the patients, but are there for the, for the clinicians also. And it's exciting.
1: No, absolutely. Joe, what were your thoughts, my friend? Any last comments to the audience?
2: Yeah, to-
3: totally, totally agree with everything that's been said. I think it's been a fun time. Uh, I think you've said it a lot. Customize it. Each patient's different. You know, if something's better for the patient and you don't do it, you know, get a colleague. I love it. I have great colleagues at NYU that I could just you know, send my patients on overdue because I feel like it's it's you know more appropriate or better in their hands. So yeah, you know, we work as a team. We always just try to find the best option for each patient, and you know, it's uh, it's humbling to do this every day.
1: Oh man, I love it. You, know, you guys are awesome. This was this was a lot of fun. I'm not just saying that. I mean, this is I loved hearing these comments, man. You guys are awesome. Uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts, your wisdom, just making it fun and. Uh, you know, help hopefully helping our colleagues out there with some pearls i know it's always we're all learning from each other consistently and that to me is what keeps me going is learning from everybody and so everybody stay safe stay healthy keep keep pushing forward keep questioning each other keep questioning yourself see if we can keep doing better for ourselves and for our patients more importantly so thanks everybody enjoy hopefully for another episode of this podcast someday soon take care everyone
0: thank you for tuning into this episode of gt the podcast If you have any feedback or topic suggestions, find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And stay tuned for more hot topics in glaucoma care on GT The Podcast.